Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. Sadly, I am not Alistair Thomas, who's been called away by matters of great import, or even Hamish Penman, who's beavering away at a conference, but I am Ed Reed, Africa and LNG editor, so that's something. Joining me in the control booth today are Andrew Dykes, content editor, and Ryan Duff, reporter. Ryan, we're going to start with you. Uh, you, you wrote a piece this week about uh, a, a report on the North Sea boardrooms being pale, male, and stale. Bring us up to speed. Yeah, I'm uh, making my evil debut with a bang with this one. Um, so the pressure group uh, Powerful Women uh, released their annual State of the Nation report which shone a light on the the make uh, the gender makeup of boardrooms across the UK energy sector, and it found that a staggering twenty one percent of energy companies across the UK have zero female representation in their boardrooms, which is insane to think about. And um, Group Chair uh, Katie Jackson said that this is a number that always kind of shocks her every week uh, every year when it comes around they look at this and go is it still that high uh, you know 16 percent of executive board seats so your ceos your cfos vice presidents presidents are held by women that's really low I, I don't think i need to need to hammer that point home i think everyone realizes that that's not a good figure and you know you're looking at notable names like enios repsol Cinepec, you know Park Mead, all having no women at all on their boards. These are names that, you know, are batted about quite regularly. You'd expect them to be up with the times, and they're sadly lacking in this gender diversity uh, space. Repsol Cinepec did get in touch uh, and say, to say that they are looking to improve overall female representation across the board, not just in their boardroom, but, you know, across all areas of their business. They're looking to uh, bring in new initiatives to increase female representation. However, when I spoke to Katie, she mentioned that it's not just these these initiatives that are needed. You know, obviously your, your CEOs and those in charge of the companies need to be seen as wanting to increase this representation. You know, they it's all well and good impl- implementing the same policy that your competitor has just to look good. But what are you actually doing to drive that forward and, you know, look like you're trying to solve the problem as opposed to just sort of treading water, I guess, is the, the way to put it. So, so is, I mean, you say, you say 21%, is that, is that better or worse than, than, than last year? Like, what, what's the trajectory? It, it looks like it's going up. So that's the good thing. That is the positive. If we're not going all doom and gloom, which, you know, we don't want to ruin your morning too much as you're listening to the, the fabulous Energy Voice Out Loud. But yes, it's, uh, it is going up. It is generally the trend is that there is slightly more representation. Um, and for for the first time, I believe, uh, powerful women have looked at middle management roles as well as that sort of boardroom stuff. And that's also taking a, a serious uptick. That's looking very good. So we spoke to Katie about, is that making a pipeline? You know, does that mean obviously middle management leads to upper management and so on and so forth? And so that general trend of increased representation across the board is definitely... Definitely positive, you know. Um, if we're, uh, you know, I'll jump to to what I was wanting to to round out on, uh, but it's we've kind of led quite nicely on it. Uh, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. The super majors seem to be really leading the charge. Uh, you know, like. 
We've got BP standing at 46% of their uh, boardroom being represented by women, 43% for Total, 46% for Chevron. And Shell actually has a majority of women on their board standing at 55%. So there is clearly, you know, an onus for those at the, the very top of the industry to want these diverse voices, to want these discussions, these, uh, you know, have a diversity of leadership. Um, and that's important. You know, like the industry's tackling quite a major puzzle at the moment in the form of the transition and, you know, adopting new technologies. And, you know, Katie pointed out studies that show that having different different backgrounds of voices help, But if, uh, you know, in solving these things. But I think it's just a common sense thing, isn't it? You know, like if you're getting people with different backgrounds, different viewpoints to all come together to solve an issue, you're more likely to come to the the solution quicker than if it's just people that all come from a similar background with similar opinions and similar outlooks, you know? I mean, uh, obviously these the powerful women have, have put out this report looking at looking at the problems. Did they did they provide any solutions? Did they say there are ways in which we can tackle this? So mainly the report kind of outlines the it, I, I don't think it's really even trying to say this is the problem. It's more going, this is, you know, it's it's the state of the nation report. You know, it's this is how things are right now. You know, no sort of frills, just this is, you know, X member, like board members per firm. This is how many of them are women. That's the percentage breakdown. Yeah, but Katie did mention that, like I say, it's the it's the CEOs that need to be looking to, or the, the company heads, your, yeah, like any of your executive board, need to be looking at showing women, listen, you are welcome here. And not just, yeah, implementing these initiatives that maybe just make you look like you're keeping up with your competitors, but actively saying, well, we want, you know, women to be working with us uh, for these diverse voices and to introduce them into what was maybe once a traditionally very male-dominated space. I think what struck me is uh, it seems to be below the representation of women in industry, at least the figures I have from, I think, a year or two ago, the RGU put together had a kind of general representation of about 25%. Um, so 21 is kind of below the the average uh, amount of women in the workforce, which I think is, is a bit of a red flag, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't exactly paint the industry in a positive light when, you know, you're looking at business as a whole and it's, you know, well, if if we're at 21% and, you know, the average is 25, you know, obviously the energy sector would be taken into account when gathering the, those numbers. So there's clearly sectors that are maybe higher, then that's why they average out at that 25 Um not only that, you know, like if you look at the uh, if you look at FTSE, they're saying that you should have an average of about forty percent or higher female representation on the board. You know, like um, I spoke to one firm that only has three members on their board, so they were saying, "Well, it's difficult for us to reach that forty percent because it's either we have one, two, or three women on the board, and that's it." You know, so it's either thirty-three, sixty-six, or a hundred. You know, it's there's no why not a hundred? Well, thirty-three would be a good start, exactly, right? <laughs> and well, and that was, and that's well, they were. That was one of, one of the firms that were kind of not really highlighted in the piece because they were thirty-three percent. It's like so obviously there are there are difficulties in reaching that 40%, but that is the benchmark. That's what what I think all firms should be looking to get, right? They should be looking for as close to that 50-50 split as they can reach. And I understand that not all firms have an even number of board seats, but yeah. 
I mean, it, it feels a little bit it's like it's sort of representative of the challenge that the broader industry is facing, right? Like, I mean, I think oil and gas, obviously, it's having problems recruiting uh, young people into the industry. Like they're, they're, you know, everyone, you know, we're at that sort of stage in the in the commodity cycle where people are saying, oh, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're running out of, uh, we're running out of graduates. Obviously, it's a it's very much a boom and bust uh, industry, which obviously brings its own challenges. But it feels like that, you know, the I suppose the the, the stereotypical image of, of oil and gas being, I suppose, maybe slight off off putting, you know, frankly, to to, to women and also people of color, uh, and and then and then obviously coupled with this kind of concern around reducing emissions, uh, the energy transition. I mean, if you're kind of coming out of a university, uh, would you would you want to go and work for an oil and gas company? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting argument to be made, isn't it? You know, especially we keep hearing from industry that young people, even if, if they are looking to work in oil and gas, they're asking in job interviews, but what's your strategy for net zero? Where, where are you heading? Are we part of the solution or are we part of the problem? And yeah, I think if you're looking to an industry and you don't see anyone like yourself in it, that doesn't help, right? You know, you're definitely going to look elsewhere because you're like, oh, well, that's, that's not a space for me. And I'm, I'm very well aware that we are three white dudes discussing female representation. <laughs> so maybe we're not the people to solve that, but it's definitely an issue worth highlighting, you know? I think it's interesting that the, the sector has definitely wanted to kind of make itself look a bit more like tech or about other industries of late. And it's sort of perhaps mirroring a lot of those problems as well. They haven't quite found the right solution to improve some stuff that's really, really structural. And I think for as long as you or I have been reporting it, it's, you know, it does, the trajectory does seem to be getting better, but it's certainly not accelerating, I would say, particularly fast. Indeed, indeed. So I think that's probably a good place to, uh, to, to take a break. Uh, we'll be back shortly. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice and host of the Mega Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. This series sees us examine the state of energy storage technologies and their wide-ranging effects on energy markets. So far over the course of our series, we've looked a lot at the big picture. Grid-scale batteries, seasonal storage, and the policy and investment landscape underpinning major developments across the country. In our latest episode, we're drilling right down to the small scale to focus on where we're most likely to interact with storage technology in our daily lives, in our homes. As home energy systems become increasingly smarter, storage is set to play a greater role in how we use and consume energy, and will hopefully not only help us use greater amounts of renewables, but may even save us some money. So join me, my roster of BDO co-hosts, and a range of diverse guests from across the energy and climate sector to learn more. Look for the Megawatt Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or in your regular Energy Voice Out Loud feed, wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, this week we've seen some uh, some some really interesting news out of out of Kenya, where uh, some years ago, more than ten years, in fact. Uh, Africa Oil Tallow found uh, hundreds of millions of barrels of crude. Um, it was in quite a tricky part of Kenya. There have been security questions. But, you know, that said, they still found, you know, a really substantial resource. They, there was some uh, initial excitement. Um, there was some. They, they even exported some uh, some 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 barrels uh, by, by 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 truck for about six months. 
Um, but they've been unable to really move that project forwards. Um, so the, the challenge has been um, that these uh, this, this this resource is is effectively uh, lost in the middle of Kenya. To get it out, you're going to need uh, to build uh, local facilities. You're going to need to build pipelines. You're going to need to build uh, port facilities. So the whole thing really needs like an integrated uh, development plan. And I think uh, you know Tallo. As, as, you know, obviously, its 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 uh, outlook has changed in the in the last uh, couple of years. But but previously, it it had been sort of you know obviously going out there and and and, and drilling frontier wells, but never really being able to uh, carry out an integrated uh, development in, in in quite that way that that this that Kenya has provided. Africa Oil, um, similarly, it's a small company, uh, didn't have the didn't didn't have the chops. It looked like things were changing, so uh, Africa Oil actually sold down a, a, a stake in the in the project to Maersk in about 2016. Um, Africa Oil then took some of that cash and, and, and bought into Nigeria, producing asset, which has been extremely uh, remunerative for it. Um, and then Maersk got taken over by Total, and then essentially the project stalled. Um, so Total came in, and and the, the three companies essentially said that they were looking for a, a deep pocketed company to come in and and effectively finance the the, the whole thing. So that's something like three and a half four billion dollars they say to get this sort of hundred twenty thousand barrel per day project uh, up and running. Obviously, the timing for that was not great. 2018, 2019, 2020, obviously pandemic. Things were things were were, were looking quite 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 rough, and 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 also there were kind of questions around security. Um, there there been some uh, been some local attacks, been some challenges. There've been questions around water. Uh, land ownership is always a it was always a question in in East Africa, particularly. So, it's been a project that's faced real challenges, but up until this week it really felt like the companies at least Africa Oil and Tallo were really kind of keen to kind of crack on and and, and bring it to fruition Total always seemed a bit more uh, skeptical it's working on its own project in Uganda but this week um Africa Oil and Total both announced that they were pulling out um they were essentially relinquishing their stakes handing their stakes over to Tallo uh, and, and and writing down those uh, writing down the values the the reason uh, given so Africa Oil um, I, I spoke to a, to a, to a guy there he was saying you know essentially the project economics still looked like they would work but there is just a challenge in um, allocating management time resources and just the speed at which things are moving um, the, the Africa Oil has come to the conclusion and Total also to the conclusion that essentially nothing is going to change in Kenya in in the short term so i would say maybe within the next year they don't feel that 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 farm that's going to going to come through there are a couple of indian companies who are looking at it they've now pulled out of of talks it seems going to reports from the local press so it really feels like we've reached a bit of an impasse and and possibly you know it might be the end of the road for uh, kenya's oil aspirations and so like what <laughs> After all this time, have they all been looking at each other, hoping that one of them would stump up the money? You know, has it just been going around in a circle with everyone looking at the other one, going, "Well, one, you know, we're going to drum up some cash pretty soon." Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, I think it was it's been really interesting. So, I've, over the years, I've kind of tuned into various, uh, you know, kind of you know, 
obviously briefing calls and presentations and whatever. And, you know, there were always kind of these questions about Kenya because it's, you know, I think it's like 600 million barrels of oil. And each time there's this question of, you know, when is this farm out going to happen? And and, and the uh, the CEO of Africa Oil uh, has, has, has always, uh, it's become a bit of a running joke. He, he was always saying, you know, I think it's going to close next month. And he's been saying that for at least three years. Um, it, it seems like finally, you know, that uh, next month runway has just run out. And you've got to say, like, that kind of makes sense. I think, you know, there, there has just been this incredible lack of progress. The, you know, either, every now and then you see sort of pictures of, you know, Indian officials kind of flying in and, and, and talking to, uh, you know, government officials. And, and obviously the government is kind of keen to get things moving. But it's just hard to get it over the line. And, and particularly the point, I suppose, now, right, where we're seeing some sort of move back into exploration, perhaps. But really the focus is on buying production, isn't it? Like there's, you know... I think the number of companies who would like to put up, say, $4 billion into a frontier area uh, with questionable security um, in, a, in a region that has struggled and, and you know, really kind of take that long-term punt, I don't. I, I think it's going to be a, like, a, like a tricky question, at least for, for sort of Western super majors. I think, you know, there, there, there are obviously kind of questions around who might want to take that sort of long-term oil production investment on. There's been some recent speculation. Uh, there was a broker note from uh, about about Tuller this week suggesting that Sinopec, the Chinese sort of state refiner, might, might, might be interested in coming in to that big Kenyan project. Obviously, you know, Tolo is still there, right? It's it's still saying, look, we can do this. Um, I mean, they, they, they haven't come out on, on record quite as, as bullishly as Keith Hill and said it's going to happen next month. But Tolo still feels they can do it. And they feel that, I think, having that 100% stake gives them a better negotiating hand, right? That they can they can really kind of uh, now, as you say, Andy, like, you know, now they've moved those you know, two other partners out. They can, you know, kind of march to the, to, to the, to their own beat and, and really kind of get it done to their timetable. I don't, I don't know whether that's going to happen, but obviously that's, that's the kind of the perspective that, that, that Tala is taking. I mean, if assuming Sinopec or a similar party were to come in is it is it a bargain if you do take that long-term view you know if you are investing for the 25-year horizon and you know someone's written down the value of their asset there to zero <laughs> that really feels like you might scoop up a little bit of a win yeah yeah well i mean i think that's the thing so 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 Tullo now clearly you know obviously really kind of keen to, to to bring a partner in Tullo obviously you know mostly focused on ghana where it's 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 really just kind of producing from its uh, massive jubilee field and, and sort of tra- tackling its own debt problems so so Tullo's not got a great bargaining hand so it does feel like uh, if a company came in and said, we're going to give Tyler a relatively small amount, but, you know, kind of finance the the, the, the wider development, maybe carrying Tyler through to, to some degree, that might be that might be workable. But it's, you know, it's it's such a kind of a question of, you know, deep pockets and, and who's going to be willing to, uh, to, to, to sort of stump up that, that amount of cash, right? I mean, I think... You know, maybe, you know, obviously there's been obviously these these hopes around sort of Indian companies. But I think, you know, given the way in which we've seen sort of Russian oil supplies really fall in prices over the last year or so, I think India is mostly taking uh, Russian volume. So really, like Chinese company is probably, you know, one of the few that, w- that would be able to do it, would be able to bring in the construction skills. We'll be able to kind of see it through from, from start to finish. And also has has the capacity to uh, to, to to refine the that sort of uh, that that crude that's coming out of Kenya. So it feels like the the the, the deal could be done if, if China's willing to do it, but 
it, it it still feels like in a world where you've got a lot of options, is 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 Kenya going to be top of the list? I don't know. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. But I think that's probably going to be enough on Kenya for the moment. So we're going to swing out of out of East Africa into the the gilded stairways of uh, of, of of Dallas and some uh, some some big ticket office moves after this break. The UK government has set out its overarching plan to get the country to net zero. But what are the next steps we should be taking along the way? In the fifth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around energy storage. As renewable energy becomes an increasingly important share of the grid, and we dial down hydrocarbons such as gas and coal, balancing out the peaks and troughs of generation and demand will be essential. In this episode, James Nicholson, partner at EY Parthenon, and Alex O'Kineda, CEO and founder of Gore Street Capital, talk over some of the opportunities and challenges around energy storage, where we've been, where we are now, and where we're going. That's Net Zero Nudge, episode five on energy storage, out now. So Andy, big news out of Dallas. Um, is the hit TV show coming back to our screens? Sadly not, and I, I think... Uh... We will never see its like again. Is, uh, <laughs> is the, the takeaway from my story this week? So uh, Exxon Mobil is moving its uh, corporate headquarters to Houston. Uh, no big shakes in a, an office move happens all the time. Uh, in this case, they're moving from Irving, a suburb of Dallas, to this uh, new campus in Spring in the, the outskirts of Houston. It's part of a cost-cutting strategy announced last year uh, by CEO Darren Woods, who at the same time is combining the company's chemical and refining divisions. All told, looking to save around $6 billion, uh, I think mainly to preserve its dividend and buyback levels. However, this in particular move will see some luxurious executive perks disappear from the roster at ExxonMobil. Included in their Irving campus is an executive suite nicknamed the God Pod, which is a 20,000 square feet uh, floor within the, the top floor of the Irving offices. Uh, reportedly accessible only to an elite band of the top brass at the company. Inside that campus, we are told, (laughs) are private chefs, uh, sculptures and paintings from the company's corporate collection and a kind of wealth of supposedly incredible architectural features. So the the campus itself, um, it was bought in the late 1980s. Uh, The company moved from Manhattan to be near kind of production and be near the hub of Houston as, as was growing at the time. Um, it's surrounded by around 200 acres of undeveloped land, uh, wooded area, ponds. In addition to kind of looking very nice, I think it's also quite tight security around the campus. And uh, yeah, it impresses anyone who visits. So according to a report in the Wall Street Journal last month, furnishings inside include, among other things, Anna Gray wood paneling, staircases from Africa, uh, French limestone, and apparently Welsh slate on the roof. Uh, so materials from across the world are supposedly kind of pr- to project uh, ExxonMobil's global reach and, and a little bit of imposing power there, I think. Yeah, there's a private chef who uh, regularly cooked, quote, elaborate meals for executives and guests, according to people who visit the office. And uh, the Wall Street Journal said it recalls the feel of a high-end hotel built in the 1990s. So I'm really getting kind of big Trump Tower vibes from their description. <laughs> it's been bought by a real estate investment firm called Capital Commercial Investment, CCI. Um, they are moving, and I think they're in the process of renovating. The, the founder and president uh, of that company, Doug Agrawal, was was uh, spoken to by the journal for this piece, uh, and he obviously knows his real estate. Uh, he said the re- reproduction cost to rebuild it would exceed $1,000 per square foot, 
which would make it one of the most valuable buildings in Texas, supposedly. And this is an incredible quote. He said, I've been to Versailles, I've been to Buckingham Palace, and I've been to the Vatican. And this one, although it was built for a specific use, is as nice a finish as you can find anywhere. That is that is that is high praise indeed. I can I just can I just uh, and, and obviously if there's anyone listening who's got some pictures of in of, of the insides of uh, Exxon's uh, God Pod, please please do send them in out loud at energyvoice.com. We would love to see them. Particularly the one the, I'm reading this reading your story. I was really taken by the uh, the African staircases. Um, I mean, you know, there, there, obviously there are a number of, you know, uh, places in Africa that have staircases. I'm not, I'm not sure that's an architectural style. Did, was, there, was there any in, further indication about what an African staircase was? Do you know what? I, I looked very hard to try and <laughs> discern what that meant. <laughs> I'm assuming, I think the, the wood panelling was a specific type of, type of wood, which I think was possibly from Africa as well. And I wondered whether that was maybe extended to the staircase of kind of uh, very fine wooded panelling or solid mahogany staircases or something like that. Yeah, the the piece didn't elaborate, and unfortunately, I, I was unable to uh, ascertain the exact definition of what an African staircase was. But again, that's why the pictures are very important. Please do send pictures of your staircases if you have them. Have you not been invited round after writing this piece to uh, examine the African staircases yourself? No, <laughs> I haven't. I'm going to need to get in touch with Doug. I mean, we, we might need to shift our coverage slightly into commercial real estate investment just to make sure that we're still relevant. Uh, and to get that invite, I think I think we're ready. But I mean, to to, to get back a little bit on topic. Um, so now that 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 Exxon's saving all this money by divesting their non-core African staircases, uh, what is what, what what do you think the future holds for them? So I mean, it's worth saying uh, this is part of a move. This, this Houston campus is kind of supposed to be much more of that modern workplace, right? So it's heavy on glass. I mean, I have some details on the new campus as well, which is you know impressive in its own right. Uh, multiple low-rise office buildings, a meeting center, a training center, a laboratory, a wellness center, uh, child development centers. And uh, it's capped off by a 10,000-ton floating cube above the campus, which I suspect will be where the executives may well end up in, in, a, in a floating cube that replaces African staircases and private chefs. New offices are supposed to be kind of more collaborative, you know, glass walls, uh, transparent, very much the kind of modern corporate environment. But I think it does speak to kind of this general move amongst the industry. Again, to, to uh, round off with what we were talking about right at the beginning, this kind of move towards a slightly more modern appearance <laughs> and uh, and less kind of Wall Street wood-paneled boardrooms and you know corner offices where no one is approachable and, and much more moving into the modern age with this. But I do think, you know, I, I'll shed... Uh, a, a single tear for the death of the uh, 1980s JR Texas oil man moving out of his, you know, wooded campus into the kind of modern office. You know, we may never see his like again. That's probably a good thing. But, uh, you know, we will mourn him nonetheless. I was, I was going to say, I feel like if you're going to name anything the God Pod, uh, a floating cube in the middle of your office complex is probably more fitting than a floor um, in a an office building, right? Yeah, maybe we need a, a, a new, a new. I mean, I'm sure someone will christen it something excellent. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe like a sort of angel floor or <laughs> something along the lines. But I think it is interesting. You know, in the UK as well, we're seeing a couple of big office moves. You know, BP uh, is supposed to be selling or has sold their St James's offices. They're going to move to Trafalgar Square. Um, Shell, you know, is moving out of its big office site in Tullus and moving into this kind of again uh, modern, you know, central. Uh, glass-fronted offices in Aberdeen. And I think we are really seeing 
again, this this change towards the, the industry modernizing, kind of very much in a you know, physical appearance, the physical ma physical manifestations of what you want. You don't want to be in this kind of secretive uh, townhouse kind of building in St. James's, right? You want to be right in the hub. You want to have the glass frontage and the logo, and people want to kind of present this image of accessibility. So I think it is interesting that we're seeing that across the board, and even in these big, you know, U.S. super majors. Well. I think that's uh, probably a good place to uh, bring things to a to, to a resounding finish. Uh, a, a, a call from Andy for uh, for radical modernisation for the industry. So uh, when, when we're gonna... we can keep the private chefs though. Yeah, obviously, obviously keep the private chefs if you can. I'm not giving mine up. <laughs> so 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 thank you uh, thank you out there for listening. Thank you Andy and Ryan for uh, bearing with me. Thanks to the production team for for glossing over all of my errors. I've been Ed Reed. This is Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you and goodbye. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.